Hey garden nerds, I have two big announcements before we get to today's episode. Both are coming in early 2022. First, over the holidays, I'll be developing and recording a brand new online course all about pest control. It will walk you through my step-by-step process for identifying, diagnosing, and finding solutions to your biggest pest problems. We'll start sharing more details about this exciting new course in mid-January, so stay tuned. Second, and this is kind of a big one, I wrote a novel, and it's called Garden Variety, and it's being published by William Morrow, an imprint of HarperCollins, in February 2022. It was set for publication in March, but they moved it up to February, so you get it earlier. Here's a little bit about it. It's set in a community garden in Los Angeles and explores what happens when you put people of different stripes together in tight quarters. It's already available for pre-order anywhere books are sold, so search Garden Variety and my name, Christy Wilhelmi, that's W-I-L-H-E-L-M-I, on your favorite bookseller's website. More details to follow for upcoming events and book signings. Now, on with the show. It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests, and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmi. Thanks for joining me. My guest this week is Justin West, co-founder of ThriveLot. Justin developed ThriveLot after a decade in a successful career in marketing. He and his co-founders wanted to create an easy way for homeowners to bring their vegetable and fruit gardening dreams to life. Now he helps create food forests and edible ecosystems across the United States. Welcome to the podcast, Justin. Thanks, Christy. Thank you so much. It's happy to be here. Yeah. Before we get to Thrive Lot and all the great things that you're doing there, let's back up to the beginning. What's your story? What brought you to gardening? Um, you know, gardening was kind of forced upon me at a very young age. (laughs) Uh, When I was five years old, I, uh, my family moved to this little rural plot in the Cumberland Plateau in the middle of Tennessee. And and it's, it's funny, I was born outside the Bay Area in California, but my family's from Tennessee. And they bought this old Amish farm. And um, I mean, even the, the house, and there's this big barn and uh, had been built from the wood cut from the farm. And there was this huge grapevine and a huge orchard and about an acre garden space and Ooh. big mature blueberry bushes. I mean, with the big blueberries that are like the size of your thumb. Um, and then there was also an acre of wild blackberries and wild blueberries out at the edge of the forest. It was, it was kind of a rough financial period for my family and they'd come from very rural roots and we just grew tons of food and canned and preserved and uh, made jams and jellies and, and all of that fun stuff. And um, yeah, so I got to experience the perennial side through the orchards and the berry thickets and the uh, very intensive annual row gardening, tilling, mounded oh. rows, you know, that that kind of program mm-hmm. <laughs> from a young age. After that, uh, we moved again. I got into 4-H wildlife uh, judging, which is basically uh, learning everything about a wide species, uh, a wide variety of wildlife species, looking at a property and anything from farm or watershed scale all the way down to urban scale and making recommendations to set up the environment to optimize the, the wildlife population and to, to balance and increase the biodiversity. And that really left this impression in me that, wow, you know, 
yeah, we look at humanity as this destructive force, right, at this ridiculous scale. What are we? What have we done? But we also have the power to generate life and to even enhance natural systems and to work with nature. And uh, that stuck with me through a career in entrepreneurship, started a bunch of businesses, traveled around the world. Um, strangely, did not run into permaculture until uh, about six years ago. And I was, I was looking for the thing that I could work on that I felt like you know, the result of which would be the world I wanted to see. And I'd even started looking at indoor agriculture and realized, you know what, if humanity ad adopts indoor agriculture as the way, eventually we're going to destroy all biodiversity and we're going to <laughs> put buildings everywhere. Right. And, and then permaculture comes along and I said, oh my gosh, this is it. Why isn't this everywhere? How do we make it everywhere? And, um, and I, I've been obsessed with tech for a long time. And of course, we see now the most valuable businesses in the world are all some sort of internet platform. Amazon's an obvious, you know, Facebook's an obvious. Uh, people don't realize Netflix is actually a platform between, between viewers and between producers. But so said, how can we use this extremely aggressive change agent that is tech startups and marketplace platforms to spread agroecology or permaculture, these, this facilitating natural systems for human benefit. And uh, the result of that and a six-year journey of asking that question and working on it is, is Thrive Lot. Well, now, do you have a garden of your own? Because I know your, your business is tending lots of, of gardens, but if you do have a garden of your own, where is it located and how much space do you have to work with right now? Yeah, so uh, I actually live in a condo right now with a big balcony, and it's been intentional because the past three years have been an intense focus on this business. And, you know, of course, I dream every day of my food forest and you know, my chickens and all my regenerative systems I want to put together. I do have, uh, you know, I can't help myself, I've got a bunch of planter boxes out on the balcony. Um, I like to experiment with different things. I've got a mushroom log here in my office. That awesome. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> how many people, yeah, how many people can say they have a mushroom log in their office? Not many. So <laughs> you fit right in here, Justin. <laughs> let's, let's normalize that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's cool. Uh, so you have some pots on your balcony. What are, what are some of your favorite things to grow? I like to experiment. I've got some weird stuff going. I've got. I'm in. Uh, I'm in Tennessee. I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, Zone Six, and I grew a ton of moringa on a uh, <laughs> a patio balcony this year. And I mean, oh, it just shot up like a weed. It was beautiful. It was just so cool to look at it every day and watch it go. Uh, the leaves are delicious. That that's been fun. I'm growing some some ginger and some uh, lavender and some uh, turmeric even. Um, and then, you know, some cherry tomatoes and carrots and, and uh, some other veggies. And I've got some fennel and cilantro, you know, that kind, of, that kind of fun stuff. Cool. Now, I should mention, listeners, we are recording this in October, but you're not going to hear it until December. So these, these things are probably long gone for you by now in Tennessee, right, with the cold settling in. Believe, believe it or not, I, I experimented with starting a lot of stuff late. Um, I'm still getting ripe cherry tomatoes right now. I've got a ton of carrots. Um, I did harvest the moringa because that's a tropical plant and it's you know, started to wilt once we got in the 40s. But yeah, everything's, everything's definitely on its way out. Um, but the mushroom should be just about to pop. <laughs> nice. And that's interesting because 
Uh, well, I've been, I'm here in Southern California where it's been an incredibly dry year and I've had a mushroom log in the only spot that gets shade most of the time and I've got shade cloth over it, but it's out of sight so it's out of mind and I haven't been watering it and so I don't know that it'll ever produce anything. I keep hoping for that El Nino year where it's just going to be wet a lot, but it's not. So how do you managing that indoors, that mushroom log? I have a reminder on my phone that reminds me to soak it once a month. Yeah. <laughs> it's something, something I've seen other people do, uh, especially if you're, if you've got a shade cloth over um, is just to set up a, a little timed, um, very small little, uh, little water irrigator or lawn irrigator, have it spray the mushroom logs. I'm all about automating my <laughs> tasks. That's so. really smart. That is so smart. I just, I put it near something that where the sprinklers do go on, but I just don't think that's been enough. So, eh, you know, um, I'll keep trying. I'm not going to give up, but I, it's inspiring to me that you have an indoor <laughs> indoor you. log growing. It's awesome. The, in, in California, you're dealing with less humidity in the air, of course. Um, right. So I, I did I did see a new technique from, from somebody who's really an expert recently, uh, totem pole where they bury, bury the log in the soil and then mm -hmm. keep the soil wet. Now, especially if you... For example, were to bury like a, a little tarp or a little something that would hold water, pack your soil on top of that, bury your log in it, then you might get more air moisture, especially if you're keeping that under. But the, the air moisture is what's going to dry the log out faster, make it less hospitable to um, the mycorrhizal activity. Yeah, well, that's a great idea. I'll have to give that a try. I'm ready to dig a trench and just submerge it and see what happens. <laughs> Yep. So, so let's talk about ThriveLot because that is what, uh, that's been your baby for the last six years, you said. So how did you end up there? Uh, I mean, you did tell me a little bit about that already in this part of this journey, but where, how did ThriveLot blossom? Yeah, good, good question. Um, you know, again, I started with this intention to, to say, hey, we should be facilitating natural systems for human benefit. The design science exists. Why? <laughs> why? Why are we still doing all of these dumb things to produce our food? And where is a point at which we can start to get traction and build a business to scale this out? And, and something that we realized along the way is that, um, you know, a lot of people really have this idealized self-sufficiency uh, food growing outside their door. Uh, and, and they also maybe even have, uh, they, they want to see more nature, right? Even if it's not food for them, if it's bees, birds, butterflies, flowers. Um, but the majority of those people don't have time to actually learn how to do it. And they don't have time to do it much less. Uh, plus the, the learnings to, to be able to design and install a real agroecological system, it, it, it's, it's more advanced, you know, a permaculture design course might be a good start, but it's still, I mean, I, we, we talked to people that have been creating massive watershed level food forest for 30 years, and they'll tell you that I don't know anything. Nature is more complex than you can think, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Nature and, always and, wins, as I yeah, always say. Exactly, exactly. But the, the idea of putting the right plant in the right place to protect to other plants, to feed the other plants, to take a lot of the work off our shoulders as gardeners or as homeowners is a really powerful one. And that barrier is even larger for most people because of the knowledge that they would have to obtain to even be able to, to establish a system like that. And so this, this has really blossomed by finding out that, hey, there are homeowners everywhere that would love to have 
they would love to live in an ecosystem. Uh, they, they want beauty, bees, birds, butterflies, and blueberries, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and they don't have time to do it themselves. Um, you know, they're, they're busy, they've got jobs, they've got families, but they do have the ability to invest in this. Um, you know, the average American family has two cars that are on average $40,000 each. And, uh, and when you install an ecosystem on your property, it increases the property value. It takes some food costs off your plate. Uh, hopefully it takes some mowing costs off your plate or time off your plate. Yes, please. <laughs> uh, improves your health long-term, right? And uh, has all of these, these, there's even all these psychological studies coming out that show that, you know, being in nature, being surrounded by living things is good for us. You know, who to thunk it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, I love that you use the terms ecosystem and food forest in your approach, because it's very different than just having a gardening business that shows up and plops down raised beds in someone's garden. So uh, I, I love that you went in this direction. How have people been receiving this kind of concept? I'm curious to know, because it's, I live in an urban environment where a lot of my clients are, um, and I've said this before, so forgive me listeners for repeating myself, but where, you know, somebody, I walk into someone with a palatial estate and they walk me around to the north side of the house and the dog run. And they're like, this is where I'd like the garden to go. And it's like, no, you're not getting it. So tell me, please make me feel better uh, about the fact that you're doing, you're reaching people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's really important, you know, raised beds end up being a part of most projects. Everybody wants veggies, right? Yeah. But your raised beds are going to do so much better if there's an abundance of native perennials around and there's flowers throughout the entire spectrum of the seasons, right? And there's yes. beneficial insects just buzzing around. Uh, it's going to take so much work off of your plate. And, and what we have seen is that there, one, people, people don't really know that this is a possibility. Uh, very much like I was when I was five, you know, a lot of people have tried to garden in the hard, kind of hard old way. You got to till it, you got to fight it. You know, um, a lot of people are learning, hey, there's, there's better ways to work with this. But then understanding that, oh, having the flowers and the trees and the native species around, having this lush surrounding is actually going to help me grow more food. Um, it's been cool to walk people down that path. The other thing that I think most homeowners, and I'm sure your listeners are different, but most homeowners don't realize that the first step in constructing a home in the United States in the modern world is removing all the topsoil and dumping it. Yep. And so they went out and they tried to garden and they said, you know what? Nothing grows here. The soil is clay. It's dead. Well, it's not soil. It's subsoil, it's right? Subsoil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what we have to do is, is, is help people understand that, listen, we're going to come in and build soil. And we're going to put plants around these plants that are going to help take care of them. And that combination, you know, just just building the soil really, really well for your garden is going to give you healthy plants that have stronger immune systems that can fight off pests. That are, yeah. <laughs> you, you, Hallelujah. Yeah. The choir. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and, but the, the cool thing that we've seen come out of these conversations is people are getting actually even more excited about creating habitat for wildlife and habitat for bees than they even are about their own benefits. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's been really inspiring to me. 
<sighs> I'm so excited to talk to you today, Justin. It just feels good. Uh, and it is, it's you are preaching to the choir because our listeners get all this, but it's just nice to have it reinforced and to know that you're out there spreading the gospel of ecosystems and, you know, all of that. So what are some of the problems you have to solve most with your home gardeners? Yeah, you know, the, the, the biggest thing, um, the biggest thing in most places is, is dealing with pests, you know, dealing with wildlife that is starving. Um, we, we've, <laughs> right. we've removed all of the food for them. And, uh, and so yep. that's a critical piece of this educational process is, hey, um, I know there's deer, I know there's rabbits, uh, wherever you are, there's probably moles. Let's, let's double triple up on the food. Let's put in a, a lush ecosystem. Let's focus on the, the native perennials. And some of them are gonna get eaten. And if we're properly observing the space and we're properly observing the patterns of wildlife, uh, we can start to set up very, we can basically give them food in a place where it's easy for them to get it, set up a little barrier and mm -hmm. have our food on the inside of that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a big thing. Um, you know, the, the challenge kind of nationwide in, in setting up home ecosystems for people is finding the people that know agroecology. Um, again, just, just having like a permaculture design certificate is great, but it doesn't get you all the way there. You need to have been in nature and keeping something alive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and so finding, finding those folks um, and then pairing them up with the support systems is really the core of what we do. Um, we can find the person who knows how to set up a forest garden, has done it over and over again. And very often, I mean, that's such a specialized skill that is so in demand. And very often those people are struggling to do business. Um, they're, you know, they're plant and soil nerds. And we, <laughs> we, want, we want to make them successful. And what they need is uh, to be connected with the landscape designer and to be connected with contractors that they can teach and that they can work with to install. And so our whole thing is that we, we build these guilds, you know, we call them guilds, and uh, we build these guilds and try to enable this, these connections take place in these localized agroecological industries to start to form because there's demand, there is supply. Um, it's just a matter of communicating and collaborating and getting to work. That's such a great idea because businesses are built on the resources that they have. And to, it's sometimes very difficult to find those resources. I have that problem myself. Uh, and, and especially focusing on the kind of education and knowledge that you are talking about, it makes, it makes it so much easier. So thank you for doing that. That is awesome. Uh, I want to ask one last question before we get to tip time is, uh, what are some of your favorite pollinator friendly plants to incorporate? Yeah, you know, the, the, the lazy answer, but it's the right answer uh -huh. <laughs> is, is it depends. It uh -huh. depends on your bioregion. It depends on your area. Um, I don't have a hard line on natives versus invasives. I think, you know, there are some invasives that maybe have been labeled as such for their own reasons. They're here now. We have to work with them. Um, there are some that do have benefits in the right area and that won't get out of control. But for the most part, if you know the, the native perennial plants are going to flower and a diversity of them is going to spread that flowering throughout the season. So there's a really important concept here, both with food and with flowers. 
as humans, we kind of think like, oh, I like that thing. I like broccoli, right? I'm going to put a ton of broccoli right here in a nice square all beside each other. Mm-hmm. And nature has evolved to have a lot of diversity and a lot of competition. And so something eats that thing that we want and it reproduces and it expands and it fills and we actually create pests. And so the biggest thing versus any particular species, <laughs> of course, mm-hmm. I, love, I love the things that are going to be edible. Um, you know, I, I love blueberries and raspberries and, uh, and I love um, uh, nasturtiums, you know, like things that I can, that I can enjoy myself. But, but even with flowers and pollinators, the key is diversity. Mm-hmm. He is something that would be naturally in a mix and getting getting a lot of that. We try to promote our native plant nurseries as much as possible around here. And so I always encourage people to go look for, look up the native plant nursery in their area or the native plant society so they can learn about what plants are native to their areas and plant lots of them because yes. they, some of them die. <laughs> yes. Do They die. That's, a, they that's one of the troubles, you know, like we have certain plants that, I, we have to basically treat them as annuals, the natives that, that just don't want to come back year after year because they're just meant to grow out in the wild. And when you try and put them in your front lawn landscape, you know, front yard landscaping, they just don't really care for irrigation and mm-hmm. the way that we have it, the municipal water irrigation stuff. So it doesn't say you shouldn't grow them. It's to say that, you know, you might just have to plant them as annuals every year. So that's right. Okay. It is tip time. Do you have a favorite tip you'd like to share with the Garden Nerd audience? <laughs> Uh, my favorite tip right now, I've been talking about a lot, is, is get more bacanoid wasps on your property. <laughs> and uh, I think this ties in with, with the, the pollinator question, but uh, the bacanoids are, are really, really powerful. Um, there's such a massive diversity of them. They're almost entirely beneficial. They're going to eat everything from aphids to hornworms. And some of the things that they love the most are the little small flowers like chamomile, uh, sweet alyssum, feverfew, catnip, buckwheat. And then if, if you let some of your dill, fennel, um, and any other members of the carrot family flower, bacanoids also love those. Um, and so get more bacanoid wasps around. They're going to help you out. They are my favorite. I just love the macabre nature of them that they poke holes in aphids and lay their young inside them. It's awesome. Absolutely. Nature yeah. is pretty gnarly. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think people feel a certain sense of satisfaction knowing that that's happening in their yard Absolutely. without them having to work. Yeah, it's awesome. And, and, and so much better than a chemical, right? Some sort yeah. of percentage. <laughs> Yeah, or even even some organic sprays that hinder beneficials. It's just better yeah. To, yeah, this way. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Justin, for being a guest on the Gardener Tip of the Week podcast and for sharing that tip. How should people find you? Thank you. Thank you so much, Christy. Uh, thrivelot.com is the best place to go. Um, you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, um, but thrivelot.com is uh, the place to go and and find out how to work with us, get on the wait list, become a supporter. Um, We do have some exciting ambassador program things coming out in the future for people who believe in this that want to spread the word in their communities. Um, So yeah, go go there, uh, put put your email in and we'll be in touch. Awesome. 
All right, Garden Nerds, you'll find a link to Thrive Lots website on gardennerd.com this week. We'll also share their social media links and their blog called The Dirt. And I love that it's at the bottom, it's scratched out. Dirt is scratched out and soil is written yes. next to it. Because I'm like, <laughs> okay, these are my people. So uh, yes. <laughs> awesome. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at gardennerd.com. Consider becoming a Patreon subscriber to support all the free stuff that we do here at Garden Nerd. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under Garden Nerd One, on Facebook as gardennerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening! <laughs>